Well, this morning, I would like to speak on the subject of everything. Some of you are looking a little bit worried at the thought of that, that you might be here a very long time. I promise you it won't be quite as bad as you're fearing there. Let's look at the scripture, shall we? I'm going to put a scripture from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 14, verse 25, on the screens. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you now for your precious word. And right now, Lord, I sense you're coming among us by your spirit. I sense you're knocking on the doors of hearts. I sense you're knocking on the doors of minds. I sense you're knocking on the door of homes and workplaces and lives. And you're saying, can I come into your mind and your thoughts and your heart and your aspirations and your bank balances and your lives, your friendships and relationships? Lord, this morning I sense you're here by your Spirit and right now you're knocking on all these different doors in our lives and saying, won't you let me in? Lord, today we open the door to you. We open the door of our hearts and minds and lives and say, come in, Lord Jesus. Take your place like we sang in that song. Be Lord. Be in charge. Be the boss. Lord, we pray that through this time of listening to your word this morning, we will be changed and transformed. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's Jesus being followed by large crowds of people. And I believe the Holy Spirit must be stirring something inside of him when he sees them. And I believe he wants to help them to be the followers they want to be. There's lots of them there. And he's thinking to himself and he's turning it over in his own spirit. How can I help these people really 
come and follow after me for all time. So he starts to talk to them, and he says something really strange. He says three times in this passage the phrase, cannot be my disciples. Now that's a curious phrase for trying to help people to be his disciples. And when he says that, he's not actually saying, I don't want you, or you're not good enough. What he's saying is, I want to help you be my disciples, but unless certain things happen, it won't work for you. You'll want to do it, and you'll get so far, and then you'll find it's too difficult and too hard, and maybe you'll fail. And then he tells these two parables to help us explain what he means and help us understand what he wants from us. Now, we're well used to this. If you want to take part in certain things, you have to meet a certain level of uh, qualification. So, for example, if you want to join the military and join the army, then you have to pass a basic fitness test. I think it used to be, I don't know if it still is, it's a mile and a half in 12 minutes in army boots. And that's the starting line. I mean, most of us would think after 10 years of exercise, if we could get to that point, we'd be doing pretty well. But the army expects you to start there and then really begin to get fit. Hilton's nodding. I think he's um, been and suffered through this. And what they're saying is this. If you can't run a mile and a half in 12 minutes in army boots, what are you going to do later on when it's a real combat situation? You have to carry heavy boxes of ammunition and work hard and carry your burg and your pack on your back and march all night and so on. You won't be able to do that if you can't do this simple thing. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. He's saying, if you can't do this basic thing now, later on it will fail you and you won't be able to be my disciple. So that's why he's using the phrase, cannot be my disciple. Here's a curious thing and a wonderful thing. When we do this thing he's talking about, an incredible thing happens to our lives. A peace and a lightness comes over our whole being. We change and the world around us changes when we do this thing. And suddenly, we feel incredibly different in the whole world everything starts to become different. And we feel this incredible sense of lightness and freedom and peace. The Bible has a word for this. In Hebrew language, it calls it shalom. You've probably heard that word. And that's what will happen to us as we really listen to Jesus and follow what he's saying in this passage. And he tells us a number of things here what we can do to make sure we can pass the basic fitness test. And just to remind us, this isn't something we do after years and years of discipleship, and maybe three minutes before we die, we sort of get there and think, yes, now I've arrived. This is not the finishing line. This is the starting line. This is where we have to begin our following and walk with Jesus in order to be his disciple and experience this incredible shalom, this incredible well-being in all areas of our lives, this incredible likeness 
and restedness and peace in everything around us. And the one thing that Jesus teaches here that I want to focus on today is this picture of a king going to war or not going to war and suing for peace. So let's just reread those verses for you and then we'll move on. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, Jesus is comparing very strongly this idea of the king and our lives. He says in the same way. So there's a lot to learn from this. Now, have you ever felt in life like you're the king of 10,000 soldiers, but life is coming at you with 20,000 soldiers? Have you ever felt like that? That for every good thing you try and do, two bad things come back against you. For every effort you make at work, your boss seems twice as miserable as the day before. For every pound you spend paying the bills, another bill comes in twice as much. For every way you try to be nice to that person who's difficult in your family or your friendship circle, they seem to be coming at you with twice as much difficulty. Have you ever felt like that in life? Now, on a good day, you might get three or four of those. On a difficult day, you might feel like all of those and everything else you re- is coming against you. You right, might really feel 20,000 soldiers are out there, and if you're lucky, you've got 10,000. On a bad day, you feel, feel like you've got three. And all of that's coming against you. What can we do in the face of life's pressures? What can we do in the face of financial pressures and emotional pressures and relationship pressures and heart pressures and hurt pressures, and health pressures, and work pressures. What can we do in the face of all of that? Jesus says, there is something we can do in the face of all this overwhelming stuff that's coming on our lives. And it's bound up in this one word, everything. And he says, if we can surrender everything to him, that's the same as a king surrendering everything to sue for peace when the army coming against him is far too strong for him and will just overwhelm him and the people that he's looking after. Now, when Jesus told this story, everybody would have understood it because in the history of Israel, there were times, and they're recorded in the Bible, when they had a great army coming against them And they couldn't do anything about it. They were overwhelmed. They did not have enough spears and swords in the armory and enough men and boys to carry them. What do you do in those times? Well, let me read you one of them where a king had to deal with this. And this is in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 12 and verse 17. And we'll... This is about King Joash... 
And he's being attacked by a king called Hazael, king of Aram. 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 17. About this time, Hazael, king of Aram, went up and attacked Gath and captured it. Then he turned to attack Jerusalem. But Joash, king of Judah, took all the sacred objects dedicated by his predecessors, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, and the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace, and he sent them to Hazael, king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. Well, it worked. It says there, the enemy withdrew from Jerusalem. They got their shalom. They got their peace. The city was saved. The people were saved. Their lives and their way of living was left intact. Why did that work? Well, I think it worked something like this. Quite some years ago, before I came here, I was living and working in Oxford, and the, the leader of our church at the time uh, said to me, Clive, I want you to go and find out something. At the time, I was doing a lot of business for the church with uh, insurance, insurances for one thing and another, and he said, will you go to our insurance agents and see what it will cost to insure all our pastors against being sued for wrongful advice? The reason we asked that was because a friend of ours in America was being sued by somebody in his church for wrongful counsel. And I can't go into the stories now, but you would, you, would, you would not find it possible to believe that he was being sued for this. It was completely wrong. And he was being sued. We all had to put in our pockets and raise the first bill for the lawyers, which was £25,000. So we thought, well, if that kind of trend is going to end up in this country, maybe there's something we can do about it. So I went to the insurance agent, I gave him all the details, and he said, uh, well, Clive, I'll go and do some research for you, and then I'll come back to you. With a few hours, he phoned me back. And he said, well, I can give you a price, but do you really want to do this? So I said, well, okay, how much is it going to cost us? He said, for every pastor, £4,500 a year. And back in those days, that's over 20 years ago, that was a tidy sum even more than it is today. He said, do you want my advice, Clive? Yeah, okay. Fire away. He said, don't do it. Don't insure yourself. Just a minute, you're an insurance agent and you're telling me not to spend £4,500 a year for us and all the other pastors and don't insure ourselves. He said, sure, well, we, we've been working together for a while now and I, I try to give you good advice. Here's why. Now listen to this. He said, when you have insurance, people come after you because they think you've got money. When you have insurance, they'll come looking to sue you because they think they might get some money. But when you're a poor vicar, as poor as the church mice, and you've got absolutely nothing, nobody's going to bother to sue you because they know at the end of it all, they will get everything you've got, which is nothing. So he said, Clive, I know what you guys are like in the church. Don't bother to insure yourselves. You haven't got a bean. What you have, you give away, I know. He said, so just leave it as it is. Nobody's going to bother you while you've got nothing. Now, can you see the principle here, spiritually speaking? When you and I release everything to God and put it in his safekeeping, the enemy comes along and says, I want to take something from your life, Adam. Oh, hang on, he hasn't got anything. I want to take something from your life, Andy. 
He got nothing. Now here in this story, Hazael was marching around Israel from his neighboring country. And he was looking to see what he could take. Does that sound familiar to you at all? There is an enemy about, and Jesus says he comes to take. He comes to destroy. He comes to kill, and he comes to take or to rob. And he will take everything we've got. He's that kind of enemy, just like this King Hazael here. And Hazael is wandering around Israel looking for who he can gobble up and devour. He's looking for what he can take and then he's going to load it all into big carts and trucks and take it all home with him back to Syria. Now, here's the good news. He does not want to live in Jerusalem. He's got his own city to live in. He does not want to hang about in the most holy city in the world. That would make him feel very uncomfortable. He's not bothered in taking the ground in the city He just wants the loot. He just wants to take the money. He just wants to take all the riches and the wealth and then go back to his own godless place of being. And that's what our enemy is like. Now, King Joash realizes what he's up against. And like Jesus says, he counts the cost. He says, well, how many chariots has Hazael got? And how many men has he got? And wow, we're just coming out of a bit of a recession here in Israel. We don't have as many soldiers as that. We don't have as many chariots as that. We can't possibly put up an army which, humanly speaking, has got a real chance at all. So what are we going to do? Right, says Joash. There's only one thing I know will work. We're going to have to give him everything to buy our peace. Now, Joash lived quite a few years before Jesus. And even earlier than that, there was another king living just after the time of King Solomon, King called Rehoboam. And the same thing happened to Rehoboam. We can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter chapter 12 and verse 9. 2 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 9. So, uh, King Joash knew all about this. It was in the history books. This is what happened then in 2 Chronicles 12, 9. When Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of of the royal palace. He took everything, including the gold shields that Solomon had made. Please look at your neighbor and say to them, he took everything. That's what the enemy does. He takes everything. Now, if you read the story in greater length, we don't have time this morning, you will see that Rehoboam tried to tough it out without the men to stand against him. And what did he lose? Come on, tell me again. What did Rehoboam lose? He thought he could stand up against this guy and he lost everything. He kept nothing. And he had the humiliation of having Jerusalem invaded and trampled all over and all the misery that that brought as well. Now, Joash knows that's not the way to do business. He knows that if the enemy takes everything, there'll be nothing left for him to come and take. Why bother to fight 
and lose something in Jerusalem when you've already got everything. I'll just leave them alone. He knows that will work. So, Joash was smart. And now look at what it says he surrendered. It says he surrendered all the sacred objects dedicated by his predecessors. Can you just imagine what it's like in Joash's house that night? Make a good soap opera, wouldn't it? After EastEnders or something. Joash. Here we go. Well, dear, we've got to give up everything. So, Mrs. Joash is there. You can't give that up. My grandmother gave us that tea set. Sorry, dear, it's got to go. But that's a family heirloom. I wanted to hand it on to our children. Sorry, dear, it's got to go. It's that or us. Oh, what am I going to tell my grandchildren? I can't give them grandmother's tea set. You know, and... Then they go down to the temple. And there's stuff in there that from, I mean, you've got King David's football shirt. That's got to go. King Solomon's iPad, that's got to go too. Jehoshaphat's chariot, that's all got to go. Everything that was precious from those kings, objects they dedicated, gifts they'd given, precious oil paintings, whatever they had in those days, it all had to go. You can imagine they're loading this up on great carts. Things they held precious. A, a spear that King David actually touched and carried. Something one of his mighty men held. All has to go. Everything. Then they go home, and Mr. and Mrs. Joash say to the kids, guys, I'm afraid we've got to go through our own house now. And um, the Xbox, it's got to go. You can imagine the scenes at night, all the kids wailing, no more games. No more playing Xbox that night. The DVD player. It's all got to go. How could you be so cruel, Dad? It's got to go. Everything has to go if we're to preserve our lives against this enemy. You know, I hear some things that people don't want to let go. My grandfather was a Methodist. My great-grandfather was a Baptist or something like that. Church traditions. We're going to hang on to those. Our church never believed in tithing. We're not going to tithe. Our church didn't believe in this. So I'm not going to do that now. Do you know, our traditions have to go on the wagon as well. I knew a guy who was set to inherit the family farm. He was one of the leaders in a little church in this part of England. It's a very small local place, and I happened to be there running a Bible camp nearby. Remember the first night I went there? He stood in the pulpit leading a kind of time of singing like we used to do in the Pentecostal church in those days, just to warm the atmosphere up while everybody came in. Really good. We should try it again. Oh, well, never mind. Okay. Um, no amens there from the worship team anyway. And his church got powerfully touched by the Spirit of God. And the young people started to be filled with the Spirit and started to speak in tongues. And although he was an older guy, he himself was filled with the Spirit and began to speak in tongues. Well, his dad said to him, if you carry on doing that, I'm writing you out of the will. You won't inherit the farm. Everything had to go. He speaks in tongues. 
He's got no farm. That's what it cost him to do what you can freely do. Everything has to go in order to avert the enemy. So, Joash releases everything. I want to tell you a story now about everything. People think that Christianity came to this country at various times. Most history books will tell you that in 595, uh, the then Pope, Gregory, sent uh, a young missionary called Augustine, uh, who came to this country a few years later and landed in Canterbury and began to Christianize the south of England. At the same time up here in the north, just a few years later, uh, Aidan was arriving on Holy Island, or that area, and turned Holy Island to his base to begin the, 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 the gospel spread in the north of England. But you know, Christianity came to this country far earlier than that. Did you know, for example, the earliest church building was found in this country? In the whole world. Or at least in Europe, anyway. 222 AD. Now, in that century, in the third century, this happened. There was a persecution going on in the Roman Empire against Christians. And it spread right to the outer reaches of the empire, including Britain. Did you know the empire reached as far as the Westgate Road down here? We're on the north side of what would have been the Roman Wall. So we're in with the Scots, okay? Some people think that's a great thing. In those days, it probably was. It might still be for all we know. Um, we'll just see whether they declare independence, whether they come down to the wall again, sort of see which side we're on. But in those days... Um, the Roman Empire stretched all the way through, through to Britain and persecution spread here as well. Now, somewhere in the 3rd century, a missionary was working in the south of England. We think he came from Wales, near a town in, in, in uh, South Wales, near a town called Newport. And he was working in the south of England, spreading the gospel. And he was sharing his faith with the ordinary pagan people who were here. And they worshipped all kinds of other gods, and they were required to worship the emperor as well. And you had to believe the emperor was your provider, and, and like God's son on earth. Well, one of these guys got saved. And during the persecution, the soldiers came looking for this Welsh, we think he was Welsh, evangelist. And so this guy, who was previously a pagan and worshipped the emperor, but had now given his life to Jesus Christ, took him into his house and hid him. And for some time that evangelist was hiding there. But then the soldiers found out where this guy was. And word got to them they were coming. And so this, 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 young, convert, this young man, this convert, he said to the evangelist, he said, you run. I'll take your cloak and your hat and I'll give myself up while you go, and I'll give you some space to get away. So he did. He dressed in this guy's cloak, put his hat on, and he went out to meet the soldiers, and he said, I'm the guy you're looking for. So they carted him off and took him to 
the magistrates. And when they got there, it soon transpired that he wasn't this evangelist at all. And the magistrates were completely, completely annoyed at him. They were so angry, they said, well, you are going to get the punishment that we would have given that Christian preacher. So they said, you'll be scourged. But we'll give you this chance. Are you a Christian? This is what he replied to them. And his reply is brilliant in the context of his day. He said, I worship and adore the true and living God who made everything. Ha! Everything. Now, they weren't bothered if he stood there and said, well, I believe Jesus has forgiven my sins. They just laugh at that and let him go. But you see, in those days, the issue was who and what you worshipped. And you were made at the point of a sword to worship what everybody else worshipped. Because what you worship affects the way your life goes. That's the, that's the argument, that's the reasoning. Now, in many religions there's a, a distance between your worship and your other life, your moral life. So you can go to the religion and you can read the prayers or sing the songs and attend the meetings, whatever kind of meeting house it, it's held in, and everybody will say, oh, he's a good one of those. He's a good religious member of our community. Even if over here you're shouting at your kids and not giving your wife any money and uh, kicking the cat and things like that. But you see, in Christianity, it doesn't work like that. You can't come to church on Sunday and worship and be all holy and really be a good one of those if over here, your moral life is all over the place and you're not living the kind of life Jesus wants you to live. Now, in other religions, people are happy with that, more or less. But in Christianity, that never works. And so by saying... I worship and adore the true and living God. He was saying to them, you guys have got it all wrong. There is only one person to worship, and I've found him, thanks to that guy whose place I've taken. And in saying, he made everything, he's saying, I own nothing. If he made everything... Well, then it's his. It all came from him in the first place, not from the emperor, not from these other false gods you worshipped and that I once worshipped. It all came from him. Can you see what you worship affects the whole of the course of our lives? Everything. He made everything. Everything is from him, for him, and to him. Here's our phones going off. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. Are you ready? Let somebody silence my phone there. Let's stand and pray the Lord's Prayer, shall we? If you're a visitor here today, we pray the Lord's Prayer at midday every day for our nation. So as we're saying, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying, God, let that be true for our nation today. Amen? Our Father, who art in heaven, be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please sit down. We'll carry on with the sermon. So he made this incredible statement to them. And they said, okay. They understood the implications of what he was saying. And they whipped and scourged him and gave him a chance to repent. He said, I will not. I worship the true and living, I worship and adore the true and living God who made everything. So, they said, well, in that case, you're going to get a worse punishment. You're going to die. And they led him away from that court and they led him, led him across what in the old Latin language called the River Ver. And they led him up a hill overlooking a place which in the Latin language is called Verulamium. Today, it's named after the man that I'm talking about. His name was Alban. And Verulamium is now St. Albans, just outside of London. And as they led him across the River Ver up onto the hill, overlooking Verulamium, the accounts say that something miraculous happened. And the guy that was supposed to execute him was so taken by this, when they got to the place of execution, he said, I can't kill this man. I want to become a Christian like him too. And they said, well, if you become a Christian now, the same thing will happen to you as happens to him. He said, I understand that. It's going to cost me everything. And they found a soldier in the guard that were taking them who was willing to do the, the job. There's some grisly story of what happened to him afterwards. And there on that hill, St. Albans, as he's now called, St. Albans, became the first known British martyr for the cause of the gospel. Just an ordinary convert who was willing to put everything on the line to protect the guy that had led him to Christ. And straight afterwards, the second British martyr, martyr the man that would have been his executioner, he also lost his life on that hill. I don't know how you feel when you hear a story like that. But it stirs me inside to understand what it means to count the cost. And Jesus says, if, you, if we can't count, do this accountancy about kings and armies, about building and everything, then we won't make it as his disciples. If, if St. Albans at that moment had not realized this was going to cost him everything, he would have never put that cloak on. He would have never handed himself over to the authorities. But he did. Because he realized that God was the God who made everything and had everything and owned everything anyway, he was willing to release it to him. You see, when you've got nothing, the enemy can take nothing from you. When we don't own our finances and money and possessions are not what we're living for, then what can the enemy take from us? We have nothing. What can he sue us for? We're worth nothing. When we surrender it all to Christ and put it all in his hands, so that he tells us what to do with our money 
and he tells us what to do with our time, and he tells us what to do with our lives. He tells us where we live and where we work and who we marry and, you know, what we do with our lives and so on. When it's all in his hands, what can the enemy take from us? We've already surrendered everything. And there's nothing the enemy can come and take from us anymore because it's already been taken. I had a simple title for this morning and it was this, everything. I have a question for a conclusion and then a simple word for a response. The question for my conclusion reads like this. Can I, like the king in this parable, surrender everything? and find that incredible sense of lightness and well-being and wholeness and shalom in life. Can I surrender everything like that king? That's the question I'd like you to ask yourself right now. And now for a response. Andy, I don't know if you can reassemble the, the, the music up here, and we've moved it all a bit, but if you can, I'd like to sing... How can I give you anything but everything? It's amazing we picked that out earlier in our worship. Here's the thing. What I would like you to do is nothing. I've spoken about everything, and our response today, nothing. Unless you want to. See, I haven't really prepared this sermon for you. I prepared it for me. I prepared a short while ago, but as I, as I went through it all again this morning, I want to surrender everything to him. I want to count that cost and make it count for him. So I'm personally going to make a response this morning. Now, if anybody wants to join me, you're welcome to, but there is no requirement here today, unless it's in your heart to do so for God, unless, like Auburn, you're willing to count the cost. Whatever cost that is to you in order to live for him. Because when we've surrendered everything, there's nothing left for the enemy to take. And that's when that incredible sense of relief in life comes. Amen?